0: Let's start. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, My name is Oren Kerr. I'm a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, and I will be the moderator uh, and participant of this uh, great panel on the question of the role of originalism in interpreting the Fourth Amendment. So here's a little bit of context. Uh, The the Fourth Amendment, the prohibition on unreasonable searches and seizures, uh, uh, is a constitutional provision that at times has been interpreted in light of the framing era understanding and at times uh, the framing era understanding has not been critical to the interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. But it's a recurring theme in the interpretation of the law with some justices wanting to go back to a framing era understanding or at least looking for a framing era understanding. Uh, It's uh, not a surprise to anybody in this audience that Justice Scalia was the driving force uh, behind this uh, in in decades past uh, and that on the current court, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch are the two justices uh, that are most interested in this question. Uh, We know that the Common law at the time of the enactment of the Fourth Amendment recognized a right of unreasonable, uh, against unreasonable searches and seizures, uh, uh, and the question is, to what extent can that common law understanding, the t- understanding at the time of the framing, uh, be something that today's justices can rely on, today's judges can rely on, uh, and so we're really going to focus on two different questions. Uh, one, do the materials uh, that are available on the understanding of what the Common, light, common law right of search and seizure, uh, co- or common law uh, prohibition on unreasonable search and seizure meant really answer the questions that the justices are confronted with today. A uh, Lot of interest on the current Supreme Court in coming up with uh, original understandings of, that can help answer today's questions. And so our first question is just, do those authorities support the answers uh, on the kinds of questions that the justices are interested in? Uh, And then the second question is, if there are understandings, if there are answers that the historical materials provide, uh, what are those answers? Uh, So we have uh, four uh, great panelists, or at least three plus me, uh, great (laughs) panelists uh, uh, today to talk about these questions, and I'm happy to say that the four of us disagree on these questions, so unlike across the street, we'll actually have good disagreement on on the uh, uh, answers. Uh, And so the the panelists, we're gonna start with Laura Donahue, who's the uh, Agnes N. Williams research professor, at the Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, Next will be Jeffrey Bellin, uh, the University Professor for Teaching Excellence and the Robert and Elizabeth Scott Research Professor at William and Mary Law School. Uh, and then third will be Will Bode, a professor of law and the Aaron Director Research Scholar at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, and then I will be uh, the fourth uh, person. I get a dual role here, here as uh, introductor moderator uh, and then panelists. Uh, and I think we've arranged it in a way so it's roughly uh, in order of uh, most optimistic to least optimistic in terms of whether the original materials can really answer today's questions. Uh, so we'll start on an optimistic note and get more pessimistic over time. Uh, And we will start
1: with Laura. Welcome. All right, thank you very much. Uh, And uh, boy, that's bad news if I'm the most optimistic uh, presenter. Because in answering these questions, the first question we've been asked to address is what answers can originalism provide in the Fourth Amendment context? And the answer is innumerable answers. But importantly, to the most important question, which is why are we in such a mess Today, with the doctrine, we have a nonsensical, contradictory doctrine that's dependent on judicial predilection, and it's impotent in the face of new and emerging technologies. The failure to adhere to the original meaning, moreover, in the Fourth Amendment doctrine, is actually has actually undermined rights in the First Amendment, and also in the Fifth Amendment context as well. On the second question, what does originalism, how far can it take us? Uh, What are the uses or misuses of it? And the response to that I think, or it might be what you're referring to, it's a little bit more optimistic because I think originalism, which caused this trouble in the first place, does offer us a way out of the conundrum in which we currently find ourselves. So I guess ultimately my message is one of hope. But I'd like to start out uh, in my first proposition by suggesting that where we are today is a complete and utter mess because of the court's failure to follow originalism. So on the first proposition that originalism does describe or explain why the doctrine is such a mess, uh, the founders introduced the Fourth Amendment to secure liberty. That clause restricted government power and reinforced the right of the people as the sovereign to determine the conditions under which the government could interfere in the privacies of life. So the proper way to understand the Fourth Amendment is first a prohibition on promiscuous search and seizure and as a requirement for specificity in the warrants that are then granted. 17th and 18th century legal treatises took the position that outside of very narrow circumstances, namely the hue and cry or the fleeing felon exception, the government could not enter into anybody's home without a warrant, which put pressure on the crown to issue very broad warrants without specificity, specifically to issue general warrants. A general warrant, just so we're all on the same page, is basically a document issued by the court or the executive branch, which gives officials the authority to enter into a home or to search for private documents or to seize them without prior evidence of wrongdoing, without specifying with particularity the place to be searched or persons or papers to be seized. Uh, It is not Supported by an oath or affirmation of wrongdoing, and it amounts to a fishing expedition to find evidence of wrongdoing. So, for centuries prior to the American founding, English treatises and jurists rejected general warrants as the worst exercise of tyrannical powers. So, in Entick v. Carrington, and Wilkes v. Wood, and Leach versus Money, the jurists rejected the crown's effort to use general warrants. As Charles Pratt, uh, the chief justice of the common, uh, the chief justice of the common pleas, explained in Entick. The law denied the crown the authority to enter its subjects domiciles at will. Every invasion of private property be ever so minute as a trespass. The protection extended in this case to letters and documents and papers of individuals. Every man was entitled to live free from the gaze of the crown. Thus it had been since 1604 in Semaine's case with Edward Cook. When he wrote, the house of everyone is to him his castle and fortress, he went on to comment on this in his institute, saying that general warrants uh, were outside the, common law, uh, uh, outside the common law because they retained for the crown the particulars of suspicion. And by using general warrants, the crown... Did not have to produce evidence in open court. So the issue went to rule of law as a constraint on government power. Sir Matthew Hale in 1678 and others went on to reinforce this. So James Otis's fiery oration in Paxton's case it explained that the Founders, when they left England, they expected their rights as Englishmen to follow with them. But in fact, they had not, and the writs of assistance had proliferated. James Otis referred to them as the worst exercise of arbitrary power, the most destructive of English liberty that ever was found in an English law book. At base was the need to constrain that government power. So when Virginia, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina crafted their state constitutions, all of them outlawed general warrants. And as the Articles of Confederation became the constitution, so too did the founding founding generation insist that there be a prohibition on general warrants. Outside of a particularized warrant that meets requirements of the Fourth Amendment or a fleeing felon in, in flight or hue and cry, historically, the government could not enter. Not only could they not enter, but the government, for nearly 200 years, could not obtain private papers. An ex-party Jackson, Justice Field, Observe that letters and sealed packages in the mail are as fully guarded from government inspection as those found in the home itself. Nor could they use uh, warrants to obtain private papers or business records for evidence in a trial. And so from Boyd, we have the mere evidence rule that's established, and in Gould in 1921, it's extended as well and recognizes the privacies afforded to business papers. So what does an original meaning of the Fourth Amendment tell us? Well, it's not, as the court suggested in 1948 and reiterated in Carpenter versus the United States, an effort to place obstacles in the way of too permeating police surveillance. It is a restriction on government power. And it forbids access to the intimate details of our lives outside of these constitutional strictures. So the court's failure in Olmstead was not in recognizing that telephone wires are outside of the house, but in recognizing that wiretapping gives access to the intimate privacies of life. So in 1967, in Katz, The court did nothing to address the deficiencies from Olmsted. Instead, it took the doctrine even further from the original purpose. It placed us in this make-believe land of relativistic determinations. The judges now make the call of what is more or less reasonable, which puts them squarely in the realm of policy making. At the founding, reasonable meant the reason of the common law. Unreasonable was against the reason of the common law, and general warrants were against the reason of the common law. This is not at all what the court interpreted it to mean in 1967. In its relativistic determinations, the court repeatedly ignores societal standards, substituting its own judgment for that of elected representatives. So in California v. serralo the court held there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in an enclosed yard, even as fences might not Shield marijuana eyes, or sorry, marijuana plants from the eyes of a citizen or a policeman perched on top of the truck or a two-decker bus. Well, I grew up in California in the 1980s, and not only were there no, in fact in Santa Clara where this case occurred, not only were there no double-decker buses, but it was illegal to ride on the top of a truck, to trespass on others' property, or to climb fences without a property owner's consent. In U.S. vs. Dunn in 1987, the court determined it was reasonable for a DEA agent to cross a perimeter fence, an interior fence, a barbed wire fence, to peer inside a barn that was located on a private property half a mile from any road before crossing another barbed wire fence and a wooden fence to look inside a second structure. The court ignored state and local uh, judicial decisions that had considered barns within the curtilage, as well as frankly historical sources at the founding that considered outlying fields and barns and the messuage part of the curtilage of the home. But Chief Justice Taft in 1928 in Olmsted defined curtilage to mean just the area directly around a home and so this erroneous understanding crept its way into Fourth Amendment doctrine. In Dunn, the court ignored the original meaning of curtilage and substituted its own judgment for that of state law that made it illegal to trespass on private property without notice. In California v. Greenwood in 1988, the court decided it was not reasonable to consider garbage within the Fourth Amendment on the ground that the bags left out are readily accessible to animals, children, scavengers, snoops, and other members of the public. Despite local ordinances, that made it illegal. There are three at the time in California that made it illegal to go, including in the city where the search took place, to go through people's trash. Myriad other examples present. The result is a doctrine that is well, uh, well much maligned for its logical, inf- uh, logical fallacies, inconsistency and unmanageability. Along the way, the judiciary carved out broad exceptions, perhaps foremost amongst which is the third-party doctrine. In Katz, white presages evolution, arguing that knowingly exposing information to others takes it outside of Fourth Amendment protections. Well, as Justice Gorsuch observed in Carpenter, the exception has eviscerated the Fourth Amendment doctrine, leaving it utterly unprepared for the modern age. Even our most private documents, those that in other areas we would have considered safe in a desk drawer, They now reside on third-party servers. It is ludicrous to think that these documents are not private. And then came Carpenter, an exception to an exception, saying that the location data is well special, and other things might be special too, but we can't say right now just what falls into that camp. While the court might have had little choice but to grant cert and CSLI, the solution it comes up with in that case actually obfuscates the doctrine yet further. And so I'll end with my second proposition, which is the way forward is actually through a return to the original Fourth Amendment. Two steps, in particular, need to be taken. First, we need to get rid of the false analogies that have marked the doctrine to this point in time uh, and these relativistic determinations that the court has adopted, uh, particularly the public-private distinction and the analogy that this has made, uh, as well as the second analogy, which is this false assumption of risk and voluntariness, taking from informant doctrine the same principles and applying it to third-party records. Second, we need to return to a property-based approach, which extends the rule of functional equivalence to all persons, papers, houses, and effects. And in doing this, we can adopt an approach that honors the original protections of the Fourth Amendment by adopting what I suggest as a but-for test, that is, A test that looks not just to positive law, but to the existence of records that would not exist, but for the individual who retains an ownership interest in this. And here, Justice Gorsuch's remarks, in Carpenter, I think are prescient, which is to look to bailment uh, as a way forward. To conclude, the evolution of the Fourth Amendment over the last uh, century really bears striking resemblance to Hamlet's descent into insanity. Step by step, Faced by increasingly sophisticated technologies, the court has crafted rules, exceptions, and exceptions to exceptions, until we find ourselves in this incoherent world that bears little relationship to the rights originally encompassed in the Fourth Amendment. It's only by restoring that original meaning that we'll be able to move forward. Thank you.
2: OK, thanks, Laura. I, I actually might be more optimistic than that, so uh, we'll see. Um, so what I'm going to do with the question is, can originalism help us solve the big questions in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence? And uh, what I'll talk about is kind of a case study there specific to the question of what constitutes a search, which is probably uh, you know one of, if not the biggest, Fourth Amendment question uh, going. Uh, and so the Fourth Amendment, as you know, requires uh, searches to be reasonable. And so it becomes very important to know uh, what constitutes a search? Because if, if it's not a search, then it doesn't have to be reasonable. There's no, no Fourth Amendment uh, regulation of it at all. Uh, and so where we are in the kind of mess that uh, Laura eloquently talked about uh, is starts with the Katz decision in 1967, uh, where the Supreme Court defined a search as a violation of a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, and I really could stop there, and you you, know, I mean, you could kind of see uh, how that would lead to all sorts of problems. Uh, and it did, and, and you know the uh, literature is full of critic, uh, critics of uh, the Katz test, and I think uh, all the panelists, to varying degrees, uh, join that criticism. Many of the justices join that criticism. Uh, the problems are self-apparent in some ways, and we get to uh, Carpenter in 2018, where even the majority of the U.S. Supreme Court, which is applying the Katz test, uh, has this line which I wrote down so I can read it to you verbatim, uh, but the majority says, no single rubric definitively resolves which expectations of privacy are entitled to protection. So meanwhile, I'm not going to go through all the rubrics with you, but the rubrics aren't clear either. And now the court is telling us, but none of those rubrics actually give us an answer. And so we're left with, the, uh, um, you know, uh, I think it's fair criticism to say that the Supreme Court uh, just telling us what a search is without any analysis that can predict that question uh, in advance. And so one of the interesting questions is, Uh, How did we get here? And so I think uh, one way to see it is that there's two pieces to why we're in this position uh, today in terms of not being able to define search concretely. Uh, One is that there is a sense of urgency with search questions, especially with respect to new technologies. Uh, So kind of an emergency feel to these cases that we have to get the answers right uh, or we're going to plummet into a dystopian future uh, like 1984 or various fiction uh, accounts of uh, government run amok. Uh, And the second piece is that uh, even if you don't feel that urgency, that there's a necessity to come up with an amorphous way to do this because there's no concrete way to define the term search. And that gives us the freedom to reverse engineer from the right answer so that uh, telephone calls must be, uh, tapping telephone calls must be searches, uh, getting location information must be a search, and then we reverse engineer uh, a test that gets us the answer we want. And if you're doing that, you can see how the reasonable expectation of privacy test does that work really well because you can always get the right answer that's really important using reasonable expectations of privacy, which are whatever uh, the court decides to tell us? All right, so I want to push back first on the emergency piece, and then the main thrust of my remarks will be uh, about the necessity. Is there another way? Uh, on the emergency prong, uh, I think it's interesting to note that the areas where uh, the search fights are heaviest are actually areas where there are other alternatives to. Uh, protecting privacy. Uh, if we look at, for example, uh, the Katz decision that's about wiretapping, Congress actually has done uh, a comprehensive regulation of wiretapping. Uh, and so to the extent that Katz had gotten the answer wrong, uh, there was a, uh, a fail-safe, which is that Congress can legislate in the area and protect privacy in that way. Uh, and the interesting thing about the Carpenter case, another place where as the Blockbuster case, the court must say that location information uh, access is a search. Uh, It's interesting that the actual government action there was the use of a subpoena pursuant to a court order to obtain location information based on uh, reasonable grounds. And so the question in Carpenter wasn't regulate this or not regulate it. It was whether you needed a warrant plus probable cause or whether you could get this information with a subpoena based on reasonable grounds. Uh, And I think you can see where I'm going there. The emergency piece to that um, is less compelling. Uh, certainly wasn't the case that when George Orwell wrote 1984, he was thinking we can't have a government that's able to access records based only on reasonable grounds. It must be probable cause, otherwise uh, tyr- tyranny will uh, form. All right, so uh, that's as good as a joke sketch. So if you don't uh, find that humorous, uh, you're in trouble for the rest of the talk. Okay, so uh, the and the, kind of my contribution uh, going forward here is suggest. You know, I think that's something reason- reasonable people can disagree with. Uh, but you know, is there a way to do this uh, more concretely? Uh, and kind of why I'm on this panel is that I wrote up uh, what I consider a textual alternative to uh, defining uh, search. Uh, and here, you know, the, when we talk about originalism in this context, the way I'm using it is uh, caring about the text, caring, taking the text seriously, and then using historical sources to illuminate the meaning of the text. And to that point, I think you can do this. Uh, you can define search. Uh, in that spirit, and you end up with a better uh, way to do what we're trying to do uh, here in terms of interpreting the term search uh, than the CATS test. And so uh, what I wrote up in the Michigan Law Review, which just came out uh, under the title of Fourth Amendment Textualism, is an analysis of defining what is a search using three parts of the constitutional text, three parts of the Fourth Amendment text. Uh, And the first, obviously, is the term search itself. Uh, And so if you look at, you know, one thing to think about is we understand this term search. It's actually quite puzzling that there's so much difficulty defining search over the past decades, uh, considering that it's an intuitive term that we use all the time. Um, One of the examples that I use for this uh, is that there's cases uh, agonizing, Supreme Court cases agonizing over uh, whether questioning an undercover uh, informant, questioning a suspect constitutes a search. Uh, And if you think about it, it's, it's puzzling because... We would never call that a search. If I said, like, after the uh, discussion here, the audience will have a chance to search the panelists to find out you know, what they think about the Fourth Amendment, it wouldn't make any sense, because that's just not how we use the word search. And it tells you something about how far we've drifted from the text that there is a line of Supreme Court cases trying to decide if questioning uh, is, in fact, a search. And that actually gets us uh, third party doctrine. Uh, and And so what I do is I say, well, could we just use our intuitive de- definition of search? Uh, and then I include a definition, but it's just intended to track uh, how we already think about the word search. Uh, and that definition is an examination of an object or space to uncover information. Uh, and so with that definition of search, you can see that it's not questioning, right? And then it gets some other Supreme Court cases uh, get a different answer. Uh, with that as well. The famous cases where a dog sniffs some luggage, Supreme Court says that's not a search uh, because uh, you don't have a legitimate expectation of privacy if you're carrying drugs in your luggage. Uh, and so what I would say is, no, that's a, that's a search of your luggage. The dog is sniffing your luggage to find out what's inside. It's an examination of an object or space to uncover, uncover information. That's a search, you know, and, and then we move on, right? We don't have to talk about reasonable expectations of privacy, what is society Uh, think about this. We don't have to kind of shift gears from reasonable to legitimate like the court does uh, in those cases. Uh, And so using that piece, so that's one piece, right? We just use the intuitive definition of search. Uh, I think that gets us a long way out of the quagmire uh, that Laura is talking about. The other thing is you can look at the historical sources, and that's the way they were using the term search. The the, uh, Constitution is using the term search the way we use the term search. There's no suggestion that this was a placeholder for future development uh, of uh, privacy protections or something like that. They're using search, like Laura talks about, promiscuous search, busting into houses, looking through the drawers and things like that. That's what they're talking about when they talk about search. Uh, okay, so that's the first part. Obviously, the second part gets interesting. You look, there's other pieces of the text that are very helpful here. Uh, and one is the Fourth Amendment limits its protections to uh, searches of persons, houses, papers, or effects. And so if you're gonna take the text seriously, then you have to go through uh, and define those terms, most of which uh, are not difficult uh, to define. There's a couple points I wanna make, and I'm happy to talk more about it in the Q&A, and this is obviously the subject of the article I was referencing. Uh, but one thing that's important to see uh, is when we talk about a search of a person that the Fourth Amendment is contemplating, uh, we're talking about uh, searches of your person, like you know, taking blood, uh, cheek swabs. We're not talking about searches that uncover a person. So a good example would be, there is a surveillance camera uh, outside in the lobby, and you walk through and the police use the camera to find that you were in the lobby. Uh, that would be a search that found a person, but it's not a search of a person, uh, and so it wouldn't be covered by the Fourth Amendment. Uh, next point to make uh, as, as to papers, uh, looking at this, the historical sources, I think it's fairly easy to say that papers uh, extend to uh, electronic documents. And so that, you know, obviously it's justified in the paper, but just an important point. Uh, the other thing that's important here is to see effects. The word effects has a chance to blow up the whole enterprise, because sometimes people suggest that effects covers everything, like your tone of voice, your image. Uh, your cell phone signals and things like that, but there's just no fair way to interpret the term "effects" to cover intangible objects, and instead it means uh, personal property, uh, you know, your purse, your car, uh, things like that. Uh, the last piece of Fourth Amendment textualism uh, is the word "there" in the Fourth Amendment. So the Fourth Amendment uh, protects uh, the people uh, against searches of their persons, houses, papers, and effects, and so I interpret the term "there" as the court has uh, to put a limit on who can challenge the Fourth Amendment violation. If I'm suspect in a murder and the police search the uh, victim's body and her fingernails and find uh, evidence under there, I can't challenge that. Search as unreasonable. It's a search of a person, true, but it's not a search of my person, and so I wouldn't have a Fourth Amendment claim uh, in that respect. And so then the rest of the article uh, that I'm referencing gives lots of examples of how would this apply in various contexts, and I think at the end of the day, uh, presents a surprisingly predictable uh, textual, meaningful Fourth Amendment protection that's just miles ahead uh, of where we are currently. Uh, and so to conclude, that's, that's one place where uh, textualism slash originalism has a great deal to offer on the big questions under the Fourth Amendment.
3: So there's a common fact pattern in a lot of uh, Fourth Amendment cases where the uh, criminal defendant, uh, these are guilty criminal defendants, so criminals, uh, consent to a search of their car, and it turns up a whole lot of incriminating evidence. And you wonder, why on earth did somebody consent to this search? Uh, maybe the consent wasn't totally voluntary. I maybe mean, they weren't thinking it through. So I just want to say in advance, while I consented to let Oren go last, I do feel a little bit like I'm walking into a trap.
0: <laughs> there's a second round. <laughs>
3: So let me just uh, take a step back first. So nowadays I think we have three major questions about the Fourth Amendment. What range of government activities does it cover? What does it require the government to do with respect to those covered activities? And what remedies does it impose if the government doesn't behave lawfully on those first two things? So the first question is, what's a search? What's persons, houses, papers, and effects? What are the things that, that trigger the Fourth Amendment? The second question, what does it require the government to do? What is reasonableness? When does it require a warrant? When is reasonableness the same as a warrant? When are there exceptions? So what does the government have to do? The third question, uh, what do you do when that doesn't happen? Do you sue? Do you get the evidence excluded, etc.? So you've just heard Jeff and Laura talk about the first two questions, uh, but it may actually be the third question where originalism and founding era practice have the clearest answers and the most to say, and Once we get the answer to that third question, that may actually help us understand the first two questions better. So I'm actually going to skip ahead and start with the third. It's pretty clear that the original remedy for Fourth Amendment violations for searches and seizures uh, was not the exclusionary rule, the most common remedy today, where a criminal defendant tries to have uh, otherwise admissible evidence excluded on the grounds that it was obtained unlawfully. It was not the Bivens lawsuit. Uh, a federal common law uh, cause of action for damages created in the 1970s that lets you sue an officer for damages occasionally, although less and less often uh, because of the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. Uh, It was instead an ordinary common law tort suit. So the, the classic Fourth Amendment cases uh, and the cases preceding the Fourth Amendment are trespass suits, they're false imprisonment suits, they're suits where somebody sues the officer for doing for for doing an ordinary tort for taking their stuff for for grabbing them for invading their liberty. The officer then says, uh, you know, I-, I was acting under government authority, I was therefore allowed to do this. And then the response is, no, you were acting outside of your authority because uh, in modern parlance it was unconstitutional, it violated the common law. But basically the the common lawsuit operates as the vehicle for, for litigating all these claims. That was the way all constitutional claims, and especially uh, Fourth Amendment search and seizure type claims were litigated uh, at the founding and for a long time thereafter. Uh, sometimes you know, it could come up in, in the course of uh, self-defense or a, a sort of self-help situation, but the, the dominant idea would be the ordinary lawsuit for damages. And these lawsuits did not have our modern doctrines of qualified immunity and official immunity and lots of other Things that have been added in the 20th century to stop them. It was a clean, sort of ordinary positive law tort suit. That was the original remedy for Fourth Amendment violations. That I think we know pretty well from the historical materials. Uh, so I just want to say that's one thing One thing we actually know. Uh, not the way the current doctrine treats it at all, but but something we know about how it, how it used to be treated. Now, why is that so important for answering the other questions? Well, once we see that the vehicle for litigating Fourth Amendment questions was the positive law, ordinary common law tort suits. I think it helps us read both the text and a lot of these uh, practices in a slightly different light. I think it makes it much more natural to read the entire phrase in the Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, not by just focusing on what is a search, what is a seizure, but what is that whole right? What is that right to be secure in your persons, houses, papers, and effects? pretty naturally as the set of legal protections that you had for your person, your house, your papers, and your effects, each of which had their own forms of common law protections. Uh, So the person was guarded by false imprisonment, lots of other torts, the house by special trespass rules, your effects by other trespass rules that were different for personal property. But your, your right to be secure in those things was your set of common law rights that everybody had. What the Fourth Amendment is saying is the government can't take those away uh, through unreasonable searches and seizures. And it also limits warrants, which were a way of suspending your ordinary common law rights. Because again, it's making those ordinary positive law rights the the backbone of Fourth Amendment protection. This has led me to propose, since I think we're all here to talk about our prior work, uh, in an article with my brilliant co-author James Stern, something we call the positive law model of the Fourth Amendment, which more or less proceeds, as I've just explained. To decide whether the government has uh, triggered the Fourth Amendment, you should ask whether it's violated your ordinarily applicable positive law rights. Has it done something that a private person would legally not be allowed to do to your person, houses, papers, and effects? And if it has, then it needs uh, government justification, a warrant, maybe something else that, that qualifies as reasonableness depending on what reasonableness means and some of the, the questions that Laura got into. But the, but the basic structure should be, the basic question should be, have government officials done something to your person, house, papers, or effects that legally nobody else would be allowed to do? That's a much simpler test, I think, than a lot of what the Supreme Court has done and also much simpler than a lot of what uh, law professors have proposed instead of what the Supreme Court has done. Uh, And it also casts some of these sort of canonical examples in slightly different lights. So what makes wiretapping a search on the positive law model is not that it turns up intimate details. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Depends on what you talk about. Uh, <clears throat> Instead, it's that wiretapping is as illegal as trespassing in just about every American jurisdiction these days. Indeed, in CATS, the, the reasonable expectation of privacy case itself, where the Supreme Court uh, held that bugging a telephone booth was a Fourth Amendment violation. Uh, <clears throat> that That bugging was actually a violation of positive California law either a matter, as a matter of the first or state of torts or some more recently enacted California statutes. That's the, that's the easier and more accurate way to see it. What makes a- accessing the cell site data in Carpenter uh, a search is 47 USC 207 and 222, uh, which together provide a set of statutory protections for your cell site information, even though it's information that you've never seen and may not even know exists to give you a private cause of action if anybody other than the government tries to uh, is, is given it. Um, and early cases like NTIC and all the other sort of canonical Fourth Amendment cases are trespass cases, false imprisonment cases that all turn on the same sort of, sort of common law engine. Um, <clears throat> the other question uh, Laura asked in her first, uh, her first remarks, why are we in such a mess today? Maybe we can shed a little bit of light on that too. So why are we in such a mess today? The problem is that the Supreme Court is currently wrestling openly with questions one and questions two. What does the Fourth Amendment cover? And what must the government do with respect to the covered activities? But on question three, what are the remedies? Very few justices have, have demonstrated any appetite for revisiting those questions, even though the court's current doctrine is the most clearly wrong on those questions. So Justice Thomas has recently uh, Pointed out that the exclusionary rule is not justified as a matter of uh, original meaning or original history, which is obviously correct. This is the most surprising thing, is it took him this long to point it out, and that nobody else has joined in yet. Um, the court is, other than Justice Thomas, the court is uh, lined up behind a bunch of restrictions on the same kind of positive law uh, remedies that might otherwise have been used to enforce the Fourth Amendment, so those are gone too. So what we essentially have is the court attempting to reinvent Fourth Amendment doctrine in an environment that it was never meant to exist in. Right? So in a world where we now have this kind of a new set of court-made constitutional law remedies for litigating the Fourth Amendment, the court is the one trying to sort of reconfigure and reinvent what the Fourth Amendment should look like in that, in that situation. Now, this is sort of the story of a lot of constitutional law where the court has taken over time things that used to be governed by settled principles of positive law and replaced them instead with court-made common law constitutional law that kind of tracks those common law principles because you can't get away from them too much or you you know you'd sound crazy or or you know do things that even you didn't want to do but on the other hand never actually adheres to the common law in any kind of rigorous fashion so you know and that that's true across Election law, the 14th Amendment, probably just about every area of constitutional law. Somebody here, I see a lot of people nodding. Um, <clears throat> so in a way, the, the story of the Fourth Amendment is the same as the story of all of constitutional law, which is the Supreme Court decided that uh, letting ordinary law govern it wasn't good enough for the Supreme Court. And they had to replace it with a set of special uh, constitutional law that they could make up. But on their good days, they're reinventing the wheel. And on the bad days, the wheels are kind of square. Uh, so. <laughs> I think that tells us how we got here and how we can get out of it. Whether we will actually do it, I'm not holding my breath. Uh, would you be
1: willing to, uh, time to yes. Thank you. Except I, I don't have any No, just
0: you. All right. Um, here's why I disagree with basically everything that's been said uh, so far. Um, I think the framing era materials don't answer the leading questions that we have today because it was a very different world in which very different questions were relevant. Uh, In the late 18th century, what mattered were the requirements of a warrant, and there's a lot of framing era materials on that. Uh, And what mattered were the rules on arrests, although mostly for very different reasons than we um, have today. Uh, It was an era of uh, private policing, primarily. There were no professional police officers. Uh, There was no exclusionary rule, as was mentioned, although the Fourth Amendment itself doesn't mention anything about the remedies of the Fourth Amendment. There was no exclusionary rule at the time, so there wasn't a big emphasis on the issues that we care about. Instead, Fourth Amendment issues came up, or common law search and seizure issues came up, primarily as affirmative defenses to other causes of action. Uh, today, we think of the Fourth Amendment very differently. We want to know exactly what the boundaries are of the Fourth Amendment, and that creates, creates a lot of pressure on, in particular, the question you've heard a lot about, what is a search? There's very little founding era material on what is a search because it just didn't matter at the time. What mattered was the scope of the warrant Authority and the scope of arrests. Uh, what was a search just didn't come up. It had no doctrinal relevance at the time. Uh, moreover, the idea of a search, I disagree with Professor Bell, and I think the word search can have a lot of different interpretations. Uh, the cases that were uh, prominent at the time of the founding were cases of searching involving rifling through. So, breaking into someone's house, looking through their closets, looking through their materials. Uh, But the word search doesn't need to mean just that. It could mean a broader concept. It could mean uh, looking closely at something. It could mean looking for something. Uh, And so we don't have any clear originalist material on which to say the search authority is only about breaking into physical entry into houses, papers, and effects. We have this question of what is a search that could be broader, Broader than that with the original materials not answering what level of generality to apply. Um, The much maligned CATS test, uh, everyone likes to criticize that and say that they have their own replacements for CATS, they're all going to be great. Um, I think the CATS test is just as originalist as every other proposed replacement for it, including proposed replacements for it that are expressly originalist. Uh, It's true that the CATS case is not written in an originalist way, but the ideas very easily fit into a textualist or originalist framework. To understand this, I think it helps to kind of understand the original, it's kind of an originalist analysis of CATS itself, in particular uh, Justice Harlan's concurring opinion that introduces the CATS test. Justice Harlan does not say in his CATS concurrence that justices are supposed to sort of ponder what is a reasonable expectation of privacy, what would be reasonable and say that's what the Fourth Amendment protects. Instead he says, summarizing past cases, that is cases before CATS, what the Fourth Amendment seems to protect are spaces that are one where somebody could reasonably expect privacy. Places that were home-like, in other words, naturally matching the text of the Fourth Amendment, someone's property, their house, their papers, or effects. Uh, so places where there were a reasonable expectation of privacy, uh, he, he, what the problem Harlan was dealing with was that the Fourth Amendment had already been extended beyond the home. It had been applied to taxi cabs, the trunk of a taxi cab. Uh, and then in Katz itself, it was a private phone booth. And Harlan says, well, when you enter the phone booth, you put in, at the time, probably a nickel, uh, and close the phone booth. That is a place where you, that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. We could think of that as being it's basically your temporary home, kind of like a, a rented space or your uh, hotel room, the taxi cab that you're using at that time. Uh, and so Harlan was trying to identify the, pl- the places, the spaces, that were protected under the Fourth Amendment. And although he used this phrase, reasonable expectation of privacy, I think you can understand that as very much an effort to divine what are someone's houses, papers, and effects in a world where we don't just have houses and open space, we have sort of partial houses, places like a phone booth Uh, or some place you rent, or a telephone line, which sort of becomes yours, but sort of isn't yours. Uh, And so I think Harlan was trying to come up with a way of capturing that idea. And I think that idea is nicely reconcilable with the text of the Fourth Amendment, and with a framing era understanding, because there was no clear framing understanding. We're all trying to come up with definitions, which are all kind of do similar things, and whether we use the phrase reasonable expectation of privacy or not, I think the goal should be to try to find this, this home-like idea, what is really someone's stuff, uh, which can be phrased in a textual way, it can be phrased in a historical way, or using the cat's chest. It's not clear to me that it actually makes any difference. And I see this uh, in Justice Gar- Gorsuch's uh, Carpenter dissent, uh, where he says, "We should reject cats, it's not originalist, and return to the original, the traditional understanding he refers to. Uh, and the difficulty is that there was no traditional understanding. Uh, he says we're sort of rusty in applying this traditional understanding. Uh, so that means we'll go back before cats. What did the Supreme Court say a search was before cats? And they never defined it. Before cats. The very first effort of any justice to define what a search is was Justice Harlan's concurring opinion in cats. Uh, So no justice had tried to define it beforehand. Uh, Some Supreme Court opinions today say that there was an era in which a trespass was the key test to a search. Uh, That's not actually true. If you go back and look closely at the earlier opinions, they refer to a mix of privacy concepts, property concepts, uh, analogies to direct entry, kind of the same tools that justices use when applying cats. Uh, And so I think whether you think of the Fourth Amendment uh, as being the cats test or whether you think we should jettison cats, you generally end up in the same place uh, regardless of the terminology you're using. Uh, and so I think Katz is just as originalist as any alternative, uh, because the materials just aren't really answering the questions that we're trying to grapple with, uh, and that that means I think some of the role of originalism in the Fourth Amendment setting, at least in these key questions, especially in the context of what is uh, what is a search, uh, are kind of a rhetorical practice, and we, we see some of this in just- Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion in Carpenter, where he talks about you know the framers would've wanted this balanced Fourth Amendment. It's sort of invoking preference of the framers uh, instead of the uh, understanding at the time. So um, I don't think that rhetorical practice of adding in discussion of the, uh, the framers being reasonable people who wanted reasonable things really uh, adds very much. I think, uh, unfortunately, because the remedies are so different and because uh, the world we're in, the world of professional police is so different, the things that matter today were just things that did not matter uh, in in the late 18th century, and therefore issues uh, that we just don't have clear answers to. Um, I think the same is true the, uh, Will, Will Bode mentioned the positive law model, uh, this idea that violating any generally applicable, applicable positive law should be a search. Uh, I don't think that's supported by the traditional materials. Uh, remember the common law. Uh, idea of search and seizures was as an affirmative defense of law enforcement against other tort actions. That just doesn't answer what is the threshold question. Uh, we could say it is only property that matters, uh, or we could say it's property and some other body of law, but the decision to say all bodies of law uh, violating any of those amounts of research is not something that the historical materials, I think, support. That, that selection process of what's the level of generality is very much a non-originalist decision that uh, we can or cannot make, uh, but it's not one that I think is, is rooted in the traditional materials. Um, I think we end up, end up with a similar problem even where the traditional materials do provide an answer. And, and here I want to flag a, a Supreme Court case that the justices just granted cert on two weeks ago called Torres versus Madrid. Uh, and the issue in Torres is whether it's a seizure for the government to uh, uh, exert physical force on someone. Uh, it, it, in which they are unsuccessful. In this case, in the Torres case, Tragic Facts, they shot someone uh, who did not, sub- kept driving and then was later on, was eventually caught, uh, who then sued the officers in an excessive force action uh, and saying, well, you unreasonably seized me when you shot me. And the question is whether that shooting, in which the person didn't actually submit, uh, was a seizure of the person. And a very good argument that the plaintiffs uh, have in that case is that the common law definition of of an arrest, generally understood to be a seizure, in the founding era included touching somebody unsuccessfully, grabbing them, in which the person then goes free, and that was still considered an arrest. What's difficult about it, I think, is that the context in which that decision was reached was very different from the context we have today. The question of what was an arrest came up in the late 18th century primarily in the context of escape prosecutions. So there were no professional police officers. There were mostly private enforcement and constables. Constables had no incentive to actually arrest people and detain them. Uh, It was just a lot of work for them. They weren't professionals at the job. Uh, And so it was a crime for the constables to arrest someone and then let them go. Uh, So they could be punished, themselves prosecuted, if they let somebody escape. Well, what were the elements of escape? Well, one of the elements is that the person had to be arrested. So the cases today on what an arrest is were cases involving elements of the crime of escape in which a constable was prosecuted for capturing somebody and letting them go. And in that context, you can understand why they said it's an arrest even if they grab somebody and let them go, because otherwise, if you're a constable who does not want to do his job, it was a crime for him to not even try to find the person. He would just find the person, grab him, say, oh no, I've gone free, you've gone free, and then say, I wish I could have done more, but I couldn't. Uh, so that doesn't necessarily mean that the common law definition of an arrest is wrong, but it does mean we should look at it, I think, a little bit skeptically, or at least start to think about whether that historical definition of an arrest still works, still functionally is an equivalent to the kind of issues we have today. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but the historical answer doesn't necessarily resolve the question uh, in my view. Uh, so my time is up and we will, I will go back to my role as, uh, as moderator. I've now just switched hats. Uh, and we're now gonna have some time to uh, go back and uh, each of us respond uh, for a few minutes to what, what we have said and then we will open it up for questions. So. Oh, thank you.
1: Right, take it? Sure. Um, so uh, I'll make three remarks in response uh, to both Oren uh, and my fellow panelists, to Jeffrey and Will. Uh, so first, uh, Oren, I, I can't resist. Um, many of the primary differences that you cite wouldn't be there if we hadn't departed from the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment in the first place. See exclusionary rule, for instance. Um, see uh, the, the 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 lack of uh, kind of original understanding that then ostensibly Katz personifies in the Harlan concurrence there. And this is the second point. Actually the reason why you're wrong about Harlan is because the judge still determines what is more or less reasonable under Harlan's concurrence. That puts the judges in the position of making these policy determinations. Um, And that concurrence, by the way, itself was drawn from oral argument. It's nowhere in the legal briefs. He asks counsel a question during the oral argument and suddenly it appears. This is not a moment of reflecting the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment. This is a total construct of 1967 when this was brought forward. So if you think about what happened in that case, this leads to the third point. This relativistic determination uh, it's actually even more stark when you think about Will's critique, which is the failure of the court to even acknowledge positive law, and the ways in which positive law goes directly against the findings, the rulings of the court. Uh, I mentioned three examples, Sorallo, Dunn, and Greenwood, but also it's the analogical reasoning. So if you look at the public versus private distinction, the court's logic is, well, when you leave your home and go out in public, if you decide, if I decide to go do an Irish jig on the corner here of, of uh, culvert, everybody sees it, I don't have a privacy right in that Irish jig that I do. And my brother, who's a police officer, he's a lieutenant in San Jose Police Department, uh, it's not fair to force law enforcement to close their eyes or cover their ears to what any member of the public could see. Okay, but if a member of the public were to follow me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, every day of the year, that would be downright creepy, and I would get a restraining order against that person. Yet nowhere does the court consider that there might be a restraint on the government in seeing what people do in public. Uh, Similarly, if you look at the analogical reasoning, In regard to third party doctrine, this is drawn from informant doctrine with the idea that what you divulge to others, you then lose any privacy interest under the Fourth Amendment. Again, not looking at all on the laws that actually require banks to keep your information secret, that make it illegal for members of the public to hack your bank account, to find out what's in your banking records, um, that actually it's illegal to do this. And instead, the judges just say, well, I don't think it's reasonable to have an expectation of privacy in those bank records, so it is precisely the creation of the CATs, uh, the Harlan concurrence test, and the failure to look at positive law as a model that has led to many of the problems that we now have. Um, and I'll just end by saying that the the law of bailment, you know, I think here has actually a lot to offer. This idea that you do have a residual right in something in uh, Carpenter. Uh, Justices Kennedy and Alito both criticized Gorsuch by saying, well look, the phone company has so much control over CSLI uh, that in fact, there, this the law of bailment doesn't apply. But the law of bailment actually requires both possession and control over that object in order for all the rights to follow. And yet the court doesn't actually look at the existence of this law as a way of understanding the rights otherwise protected under the fourth. So uh, I think uh, your remarks, as always, are provocative. Um, and uh, as frequently, uh, I, might depart, I might part ways with you in your, in your analysis.
2: Uh, okay, so uh, just an amalgam <clears throat> of responses. Well, uh, one thing that I, I want to emphasize, and, and the reason I call my article Fourth Amendment textualism, is I think that everyone's right uh, to varying degrees about the originalist uh, answers to Fourth Amendment doctrine. Like Warren says and, and Laura has written about, the world was so different at that time in terms of policing and uh, things like that, that it's very hard to find clear answers in the original source materials. Uh, but, you know, I kind of smile when people say, you know, there's just no evidence of what was intended uh, or what was meant by this. Uh, I, you know, my mind it says, except for the text itself. Uh, the text itself actually gives us some pretty clear guideposts. Uh, the word search and papers, houses, and fact, those are very specific, common words, it's not due process, it's not cruel and unusual punishment, it's not equal protection. These are clear words, they're not terms of art, they're not idiosyncratic. Uh, they've actually not changed much over time, and to the extent that if someone said, uh, so Oren says, well, search could mean look closely at, if uh, if I said, uh, is it okay if I search your bag, and then you said, okay, here's my bag, and then I just looked closely at it, you'd think I was uh, like had some kind of uh, disconnect, or didn't hear me correctly. Uh, we understand what it would mean to search your bag. Search is a, is a clear term, uh, and so that's why I think there is something to be said for uh, taking the text seriously, that can get us over the hump of the fact that the historical sources uh, don't give us a lot of answers. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say um, in terms of Katz uh, and Oren's point, uh, which, and, and like Laura says, uh, uh, you know, very uh, compelling uh, arguments, uh, but the, the, the idea that Katz is textual or originalist, uh, I think Katz does something very important. Uh, it stands between the text. Uh, and the answer in a way that lets, and like Laura says, that lets the courts do basically whatever they want. So when they get a case and they say, uh, you know, wow, this has to be protected. Location information is a big deal uh, and it has to be protected, That's CATS lets them do that in a way that if we follow the text uh, they would be cabined in a little bit and we should care about uh, the, the um, concreteness of constitutional provisions uh, in that manner. Uh, two other things I wanna say Uh, just quickly, Uh, one on the positive law, I think I agree with Oren about, uh, and the beautiful article that uh, James and Will wrote about this, Uh, and one of the only ones that proposes a concrete test that would limit the judges in terms of deciding what counts as a search. Uh, There is a real problem with uh, applying kind of all laws here and asking in every, as someone who kind of litigated search and seizure questions, uh, if it were the case that in every search and seizure question, every search question, you had to uh, figure out every source of law that might apply. If you just think about a simple example, police officer uh, is chasing someone to find out who they were. Uh, suddenly, whether that's a search would depend on questions like, did the car exceed the speed limit? Did the police uh, turn without signaling? Uh, was, did the police officer uh, get in the car and not put on their seatbelt? I, I would guess that there is a rule that like, police cars don't have to have the same kind of insurance or registration. So maybe that's a violation of positive law that would make uh, the following, a search, and things like that. And then there, you know, you get out of places where there's clear law, uh, like infrared detection of a house. It would be, you know, you'd be looking at uh, torts and things like that. It'd be very hard to answer questions that are pretty easy uh, if we just try to think about what a search is. And then just the last, the very last thing. Uh, this is what everyone says, that the CATS test came out in oral argument, uh, and it's actually in the Carpenter, one of the Carpenter opinions, Justice Thomas says that, uh, but I went back and looked at the briefs, and I'll just read you from the government's brief in CATS. The government writes, the rights of privacy reflected in the guarantees of the Fourth Amendment must be measured in terms of the reasonable expectations of a person in a given location that he is free from scrutiny. And so that reads to me, reasonable expectations of a person in a given location that he's free from scrutiny is a lot like a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, and what I think is so interesting about that is um, it's, uh, the government suggested this test, and then the court used it to defeat the government. And I think that says something powerful about cats, is that it's, it's kind of unknown uh, where the test gets you. And nothing could show that more than the first use of the test uh, resulted in a loss for the party who proposed it. Um,
3: so uh, I think it's right that, that uh, this is an area where a whole lot has changed. Um, you know, a whole lot has changed since when the Fourth Amendment was enacted. And that's part of what makes it hard for us to, to fully reconstruct it here today. Uh, and this is why we have to be careful even with, with textualism sometimes, because words that might seem to us to be open-ended, like due process or protection of the laws, might actually turn out to be well-settled legal terms with technical meanings uh, discussed in hundreds of sources to people at the time. So, so we have to be a little, a little careful about reconstructing the legal environment. But I guess one place where I part ways with everybody else is I think that makes originalism more important, that when things have changed, originalism uh, helps us decide whether the things that have changed are relevant or not. So the country is a lot bigger than it was the founding. We have 50 states rather than 13. But we have a pretty easy time figuring out how many senators Hawaii gets, even though the idea of a state way out there in the middle of the Pacific was totally unforeseen to the framers. Uh, it's more obvious there. There's a rule. They get two. We can you know apply it. And then we have to figure out, do any of these other versions of the Fourth Amendment have those features? So just three quick points in defense of myself and one point maybe in defense of Oren. Uh, so I do think uh, in our article on the positive law model, we may have sold ourselves short uh, in the sense that uh, I think the, the model is actually easier to implement and makes more sense if you imagine this world, the originalist world of positive law remedies. So you're not just like casting about in the ether for every possible police car insurance regulation. You're asking what tort is the plaintiff suing under, and if you know we're in a jurisdiction that makes. Uh, that creates some sort of you know, citizen cause of action for police cars driving around without insurance, then maybe we'd be having a conversation about it, but mm. they don't, so we aren't. And the ordinary principles of tort law could help channel what, uh, you know, what those rules even are. Uh, I, that may be another thing that's changed, is that now we can regard a, a field like torts as a muddy area without any real answers that's just kind of like, who knows, uh, where once upon a time, you know, tort law was a, a well-settled area of black-letter positive law. Uh, maybe we'll be again. Uh, on the history, just to respond to two things from Oren, so I think we do have pretty good reason to believe that the original uh, protection was not just about property. Uh, so Wilkes and his printers, which I think everybody agrees were like a paradigm case to the enactment of the Fourth Amendment, sued not just for property crimes, but for false imprisonment. I believe for the printers, actually, false imprisonment was their only cause of action, which is a personal tort, not a sort of ordinary property tort, except in the sense that all personal torts are trespass on the person, and then it doesn't really matter what we, what we call it. But I think we have good reason to believe, from the kind of the central cases, that the fourth amendment's about more than just more than just property law. I think we also have good reason to think that it can't have had a protection far beyond positive law, or else this whole original remedial scheme doesn't make a lot of sense. Like. If there were a lot of Fourth Amendment protections that weren't just limited to positive law protections, you would have expected people to be wondering where to find a remedy to enforce those Fourth Amendment protections. You'd have expected more legislative debate about how they had to protect these Fourth Amendment rights because they couldn't create causes of action in the courts, or people trying to bring proto-Bivens causes of action you know, centuries before they actually did. We didn't see that, I think, because it didn't come up, because the Fourth Amendment lined up with positive law protections more or less in people's minds. That's I, I put those, put those claims at 75% confidence, not 100% confidence. So if the question is, can originalism deliver scientific certainty, I think the answer is no. But can it deliver, I think, a pretty good reading of what was going on that gets us at least part of the way there, I think the answer is yes. Now, all that said, I, I totally agree with Oren that Katz, especially in his hands and the late Justice Harlan's hands, and maybe nobody else's hands, uh, is a very reasonable doctrine that an originalist might well accept If you just took it as a fait accompli, that we're getting rid of the original remedies and sticking to these 20th century made up remedies, in a world where you've you've gotten rid of the positive law remedies and you have to do kind of federal common law uh, remedies and federal common law causes of action, something like CATS, a kind of federal common law thing that looks kind of like the positive law model and kind of like some other reasonable analogical extensions and other things you might consider, is pretty reasonable. So if we're going to live in a world of made up constitutional law, I would like it to be made up by Oren. (laughs)
0: <laughs> um okay let me let me offer a, a couple thoughts uh, uh of my own so let me respond first to the idea that several uh have have pointed to, which is this uh concern with judicial discretion. you know we're leaving it up to the judges who can just determine uh when there's a reasonable expectation of privacy uh, If there were an alternative that did not involve judicial discretion, that would be useful, but I think the alternatives tend to also involve judicial discretion they just think of it slightly differently. So if you want to use a bailment approach, um, then you have to figure out when do you use a bailment approach and how do you use a bailment approach? And there's a lot of wiggle room in that. Um, if you want to use a positive law approach, well, which sources of positive law matter? When is there a violation of, prov- uh, of positive law? I think a lot of wiggle room in that. I think no matter which approach we take, we kind of end up with this wiggle room. Uh, and an interesting example of that also is the third party doctrine, where the idea of if you disclose information to a, someone else, the, uh, the information that the other person now has is theirs, not yours. Well, I think that's very naturally fitting within the text of the Fourth Amendment. The rights of the Fourth Amendment are in, uh, it refers to the right of the people in their person's houses, papers, effects, not someone else's. So the third party doctrine can just be understood as a way of interpreting the word there. The idea being, once you tell someone something else, it's theirs, not yours. Or in the case of Carpenter, uh, when the phone company creates a record of uh, which of its cell towers it used to connect your call, that's the phone company's records, not your records. And that was Justice Thomas's originalist answer in Carpenter, in contrast to Justice Gorsuch's uh, answer uh, in Carpenter. So we can then have a debate on the third party doctrine phrase entirely in terms of how to define the word there. But the textual materials and historical materials, I think, don't ultimately answer that uh, that question, even though we can certainly express it in uh, in a textual way. Uh, Also, on the positive law model, I think uh, uh, there's a significant practical problem uh, with having the positive law control the Fourth Amendment, which is once you introduce that idea, you then mean that it then has positive law be governed in significant part by law enforcement. So the reason we had this Title 47 U.S. code that that Will thought made the access of a a cell site record a a search is that it didn't occur to anyone that that made it a search until 2018. Uh, If it had been known at the time that law had been enacted, hey, if you enact this privacy law, it's going to mean the government needs a warrant to get access uh, to records, that law wouldn't exist. Uh, You wouldn't have the law in the first place. So there's one thing if we announce now, okay, let's start from scratch and enact positive laws and here are the Fourth Amendment implications of that. But it's another, I think, to say, we have thought this irrelevant up to now for Fourth Amendment purposes, we will now start. Um, and so I think there's a, 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 some, some significant practical problems with saying any of these positive laws count. Uh, and then finally, just on the remedies question, uh, I, I think the, uh, it's true that there aren't examples of clear uh, uh, suppression remedies at the time of the founding. At the same time, the text of the Fourth Amendment says nothing about the remedies. And there's also not an indication from the founding era materials that they intended to keep the Fourth Amendment in the way it was, as an affirmative defense to other causes of action. So um, I find it hard to know what to make of Fourth Amendment remedy is absent some sort of indication of how it was conceived, whether that was thought to be part of the uh, right against unreasonable searches and seizures, and the fact that there's no textual language talks about it. It's just, you have a right, your right shall not be violated, and what happens if it is violated um, isn't clear, And then you introduce the world of professional police officers. I think of basically the exclusionary rule was the Supreme Court's response to a shift from a world where there was private enforcement of the law to a world in which there were police officers hired by every city and state and now the national government uh, that are going around trying to enforce uh, 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 the criminal laws that really, I think, shifts the ground and shifts the role of, of where the Fourth Amendment is going to come up and how it matters. And I think, I think you can see weeks in 1914 as a response to that introduction of professional police officers in the 19th century. Maybe it was right, maybe it was wrong, but it's not clear to me that the, we can sort of answer that entirely from original materials. OK. And now, questions. Uh, sure, Steve Calabrese? Um,
4: sure.
0: Should we uh, wait here? Wait a second until the mic comes over.
4: Um, When I clerked for Judge Robert Bork, he wrote an opinion in Ullman against Evans and Novak in which he said, quote, the world changes in which unchanging values find their application, citing New York Times against Sullivan and Katz against the United States. Uh, So he thought Katz against the United States was an example of the world having changed because of wiretapping to encompass something new that the framers hadn't known. Uh, which is in support of what Oren was saying. Um, With respect to uh, what uh, Laura was saying about speech, I wondered, um, the, the Fourth Amendment is worded the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. It says houses, papers, and effects, not houses, papers, or effects. So it's sort of an inclusive list, and I wonder therefore whether effects could include speech because it is an inclusive list, it's not an either or kind of list. Um, with respect to, um, to Jeff, uh, I wondered what you might think of high altitude searches. Uh, we talked about this during the morning panel. Uh, it Used to be the rule at common law that you owned your land up to the heavens Uh, When plane flight was invented, you owned your land up to 39,000 feet. Uh, We now have drones that can fly 10 feet over your backyard and take pictures of you sunbathing in your backyard. We have drug sniffing, heat, heat emitting planes that can travel over houses and determine if they're emitting heat. How do you adopt those changes to the Fourth Amendment? And then finally, my uh, comment on Will is uh, I've always liked the idea of tort suits rather than the exclusionary rule to enforce the Fourth Amendment. But I'm given very significant pause by the fact that tort law seems to me to be in a kind of state of crisis. And you know, we, um, many conservatives have spent the last 30 years complaining about medical malpractice tort law and consumer products tort law. England barred the use of civil jury trials in tort cases in 1866. The United States is the only country in the world that still uses common law juries to decide uh, civil cases. Uh, And even then, 95% of all civil cases settle. Criminal cases, 98% of them are plea bargains, so we don't try them to juries either. So I, I just wonder whether Court law really is a realistic alternative in our world to the exclusionary rule.
1: Okay. Um, all right. So thanks uh, very much for your question. So I think speech does fall within this, uh, particularly because in the 21st century, speech is memorialized digitally. So anything you say is then available uh, on the airwaves, so to speak, on the internet. It's available uh, in various forms, but digitized. Um, and that speech, the, the fact that it's digitized, and this, Oren, kind of comes back to your skepticism of how easy it would be to apply a law of bailment. Well, very easy indeed, because bailment requires, well, first possession, um, second, an interest in the property, and third, responsibility for keeping that information or that uh, item safe, that interest in the property. When you're talking about digitization, for instance, of speech, say I send a voicemail to somebody and Verizon happens to have that voicemail. Well, I have entrusted that object to the company for a particular contractual relationship that they're supposed to then execute. Now, if this isn't you know, a, a, a typical uh, kind of bailment for consideration, then I don't know what is. Postmasters were historically considered within a bailment for consideration because the kind of information that they carried went to the privacies of life. And they had a higher duty to protect that information from others, and in contracting with the postmaster, you were in no way making that information available to the government. So I actually think that the law of bailment is, is a much more straightforward approach. It does not put judges in the position of making these relativistic determinations. And it does protect things like speech, visage, writing, thoughts, beliefs, what you search, what you read, all these digital manifestations of self that are part of this digital doppelganger that follows us around.
2: Uh, Okay, Um, so I'm just gonna sneak a little into Laura's question and just talk about effects of speech uh, also. Uh, that was one of the things I looked at uh, in terms of, you know, we talk about what the history can say about words. Um, The text here, I think effects is one of the words that's less common in that list. Uh, and so I look back at it, Laura's also done uh, excellent work on what counts as an effect. Uh, but it's clear as day that, that it was not meant to cover things like intang- basically any intangible uh, objects. Uh, and if you think about it, I mean, that would mean if, if that kind of the words coming out of my mouth were my effects, uh, then we would have all sorts of issues with the police asking you questions as a search and, and um, uh, problems like that. Uh, then on onto the actual question that's for me, which is harder, so that's why I wanted to sneak into the other question. Um, what I learned actually uh, gave my article to Orrin uh, when I was working on it, and the first draft, um, you know, had lines like, "Well, the you know the textualist approach uh, applies itself, right? It's like so easy to find the answers uh, with the textualist approach." And Orrin pointed out that it was not quite as easy as I was saying it was, uh, and so I took that out. Uh, one of the things I've learned is that. Um, you know, just like the Supreme Court, you couldn't yell a question at them, like, would this count as a search? And they would answer you immediately. What you have to do is you'd have to submit briefs to me, uh, and then I'd have to get some amicus briefs from Jeff Fisher, (laughs) and eventually I would come to a conclusion about whether uh, it counts as a search. But I'll just give you a hint of, uh, and I do do a bunch of examples in the article itself, some of which touch on uh, your questions. Uh, And I think one that's really interesting uh, that illustrates how this would work uh, is kind of um, surveillance from the sky. So if we like Google uh, Maps where they can kind of see down, uh, things like that. Uh, and I think you know that talks to the distinction I was talking about between a search of a person and a search that finds a person. And so if you're just kind of walking around and there's some kind of surveillance plane or drone that sees you, that would be, to, in my mind, that's a search of the space that you're in And so it would matter kind of where exactly you were, but it searches the space and it's finding you, and so that would not count as a Fourth Amendment search, because although it might be a search, it's not a search of the person. And just to contrast that with, if instead it was a drone that, and I think this is kind of technology that's around, uh, that could detect whether you're carrying a firearm under your coat, uh, now we have a search of a person, and it's kind of the same, but there's something different going on, and this has to do with my definition. I think you know, I think it's intuitive, but also for the definition of uncovering information. In the first example, we're not uncovering anything, and the second one we are. Uh, and So I think you can get concrete answers out of it, but I, I've learned not to say that they're easy answers. It still takes uh, a lot of analysis to get there.
3: I like this idea of hijacking other people's questions. <laughs> so uh, I just want to say that the uh, I, I think I can I can try to co-opt Robert Bork for myself and saying the positive law model provides a way for the unchanging value of government compliance, positive law to then change when the positive law itself changes. Drones are a good example, uh, since drone flights are a trespass under the restatement of torts test if they are sufficiently close to interfere with the enjoyment of the land. But there are also a bunch of jurisdictions that have specific drone statutes that create a private cause of action if people fly a drone within x feet. And it varies based on jurisdiction. So you could then have the, that picked up by the test. But to answer the hard question, uh, I, so I think it's right. I guess for, first thing to say is the question of what is the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment and the question of do we want to do it are separate questions, and it's especially important for law professors to keep them separate and not let uh, the two of them, uh, not let possible policy objections just detract from the academic answer. Uh, it might well be that so much has changed about policing or tort law or both that we would actually want a sort of overhaul of the original meaning of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, I think that should be done through the appropriate legal processes like constitutional amendments or maybe certain statutory reforms would be possible, but, but it might well be. I think it would probably be a good thing if constitutional law lawyers spent more time thinking about torts, uh, and maybe all were required to teach torts, uh, don't tell my dean I said that. Um, but uh, I think that actually would probably tell us a lot. Uh, and so I just plug two, two points about sort of constitutional torts litigation. One good thing about sending things to the tort system is then the insurance companies have become involved. And unlike a lot of us, they actually know things. Uh, and one of my colleagues, John Rapport, has done a lot of research about insurance company research into like, what actually improves police practices and the kinds of things they require police officers to do. So it might actually be a very good world if they were the ones in charge of trying to figure out how to train police officers not to violate our rights all the time. Another possible reform uh, that Clark Neely at the Cato Institute has been talking about is maybe what we need is something like constitutional small claims court. The st- current structure of incentives for litigating uh, a lot of civil rights violations create very little incentive to litigate small dollar claims. Um, and if we had a different structure, which it was more possible for people who got sort of like a penny anti-abuse of government power to get a, a you know, real but not uh, bank-breaking recovery, that might change a lot of how we think about these things. That would require some reform. In my view, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, just just to jump in then, <laughs> uh, and yours, uh, it's a little bit funny that you use big data in a world unregulated by the government to protect rights that are being violated in collection of the big data in order to determine the extent of the constitutional rights. Um, but the, the drone law, I wanted to jump in on that. I, took, um, I was on sabbatical two years ago, and I built drones, and so I've been writing a lot about drones. So a lot of this stuff is in the Supreme Court Review, the most recent one, but the drone stuff in the UAV handbook, I've been looking at state laws, and to Will's point, 22 states make it illegal for law enforcement to use drones. It's actually more illegal to use drones to uh, put guns on them because of Second Amendment issues than it is to hunt with them. A number of states have said it's unfair um, to to hunt with them, but the fact that 22 states actually have forbidden law enforcement to do this without a warrant, uh, I think, is, is actually telling, right? And it says something about what what we understand is what's acceptable and not acceptable. So again, though, positive law can be deterministic, but majoritarianism should not determine our constitutional rights.
4: To mention one other big point. The Greek government did a survey of swimming pools in Athens and surrounding areas and found that there were 70% more swimming pools on Athenian property than were reported to the government, swimming pools being taxable by the Athenian government. So, you, know, you can discover those
1: types of just there, there are also huge federalism issues here, right? Because the FAA claims it owns the Blades of Grass up and is trying to regulate drones, and that's historically state domain. So, I think we have some huge federalism battles coming down the road on drones.
4: Uh, was- I'm right, yeah. For sure. So, I had um, two. I, I think that the um, originalism debate, I see it as two different kinds of questions. One is- how are to, one is how to deal with emerging technology like drones, but I think there's a second type of question of what to do with what is I think still the bread and butter searches like you know uh, as Terry stops on reasonable suspicion and of searches of vehicles and maybe airplane you know searches you know, certain kinds of special needs searches which are seem completely ingrained in the doctrine. And yet seem antithetical to an original understanding of the Fourth Amendment and tort and trespass doctrine. And so, wondering where you think, you know, what the upshot is for originalism and these types of searches, as opposed to things like drugs and original technologies.
1: so, I can jump in on the special needs for national security. That's one of the special needs that arose in the Bin Laden case in the Southern District of New York and then came up again in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court post um, 9 11. And certainly, historically, general warrants, there was no exception for national security. So, in fact, Edward Cook said in Parliament uh, if these, uh, if, if general warrants be used per mandatum domine regis or for matters of state, then we are in a worse case than ever. We will have violated Magna Carta, right? So, there's this idea that there's no exception to the doctrine that takes account of what we now call national security concerns, so to the extent that we start seeing these appear in the law, they're not consistent, actually, historically, with how English law would have regarded the warrant requirement uh, that now we have in the Fourth Amendment.
5: Yeah,
0: And, and, and my view is a little bit different in that I think what's tricky is that the Fourth Amendment has expanded in scope, and so the Supreme Court had a string of cases, really, 50s, 60s, 70s, where they were trying to figure out, does the Fourth Amendment apply to, you know, public schools, where the school principal tries to you know breaks into the locker of the student or how does the fourth amendment apply to home inspections for safety purposes and there was an early trend to say the fourth amendment doesn't apply at all in these settings it's just just categorically the fourth amendment is just about criminal law enforcement um and and that meant that that all of these things were essentially unregulated by the fourth amendment and then later really in the 80s primarily the supreme court says No, it regulates it, but we'll have a different standard of reasonableness. It's sort of a halfway measure. They didn't want to go, they didn't want to say it was completely unregulated by the Fourth Amendment, but then if you had a warrant standard, for example, for the school principal that has to, you know, breaking into the student's locker or something like that, or government employment, if you're a government employee and your boss wants to come to your office, do they need a warrant to get into your office? Um, The Supreme Court's answer was basically extend the Fourth Amendment, but then have a different level of protection. Um, You can say that that was. Wrong. You, can, you can say either one of those were wrong from an originalist standpoint, right? You could say the full Fourth Amendment should apply. You should say the Fourth Amendment shouldn't apply. It's not clear to me, to me at least, that the Fourth Amendment historical materials really answer that. Um, not that I'm necessarily a fan of where the Supreme Court came out in its current form, but it's just not clear to me the historical materials really provide the answer to that.
6: So, uh, I I have two questions. Uh, One is for uh, anyone who who cares to answer. Uh, The the first one is, um, so we're talking about originalism and and the Fourth Amendment. Um, And when we say originalism, uh, we all assume we're talking about 1791, um, but of course, many cases are from the states. So we're not really talking about 1791, we're really talking about 1868. And so so does that matter? I mean, the Fourteenth Amendment was ratified at, at a very different time for very different reasons under very different circumstances than the fourth, although there is some overlap in terms of wanting to limit arbitrary executive power. Um, but things change. The common law changes our way of thinking about the law itself changes. The underlying circumstances change. You mentioned, or mentioned, um, you know, professional police departments. Well, by 1868, we did, I think, have professional police departments, at least in some major cities. So I wanted to get uh, your, your uh, uh, response to that. And then the second question is for Jeff, and secondarily for Oren, because you talked about this as well. Um, Jeff, you, you, you said that the word there is very important, but there is just a referent for another important couple of words that you didn't mention, which is the people. And it, it's, not as, it's not as obvious to me as it is to you and, and as it was to Justice Scalia um, that um, I can't claim a privacy right in something that you own. Because if, if the purpose of the Fourth Amendment is to protect us against an, uh, uh, the federal government, then, then, then why not allow me to assert your rights under those circumstances?
3: On the first question, I think you're right uh, that the 14th Amendment question is important and neglected, as is uh, all too often true. Uh, Part of the problem is that while there is, I think, a widespread consensus that I agree with that the 14th Amendment does incorporate the Bill of Rights, as soon as you start digging under the hood into exactly why, there's actually a lot of disagreement about exactly why, and it has major implications for exactly how. So the Supreme Court solution is to ignore this problem and to assume that the uh, incorporated right is exactly the same as the 1789, 1791 right. Uh, but under many of the most plausible theories of incorporation, there actually would be some daylight. This has come up in the Second Amendment context, various other rights that have changed over time. Uh, and I'm inclined to think that's a, an area where we need to dig under the hood a little bit more. Uh, I have done a little bit of digging around about this. and. As with all law professors who do a little bit of digging around in an area they've already written, everything I have found confirms my prior views. Uh, <laughs> but I have not done enough digging around to yet justify publishing that about why I'm right.
0: One thought, Michael. Um, I, I, one out that I think uh, judges uh, can take to this question of uh, incorporation coming later than the, the original ratification of the Fourth Amendment uh, is that there was so little case law in the intervening time that the changes as a practical matter don't don't sort of play out in, 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 in a clear way. Um, so you know, as, as you know, the cases really start coming after weeks in 1914 and a prohibition in the 20th century. Uh, and the first big Supreme Court case on the Fourth Amendment is really you know, 1870s, ex parte Jackson, and then 1880s with Boyd. Um, and so, so maybe the, the, the easy answer is maybe we don't have to answer that otherwise very complicated and excellent uh, question, because maybe it didn't make that much of a difference. But I don't know if that's a satisfying answer or just an easy out.
2: So. <laughs> Mike has indicated he's not satisfied (laughs) with the answer, uh, just for the record. Um, uh, On the question directed at uh, for me, um, one thing I'll say, I think you're absolutely right that uh, this is a complicated question, exactly what is meant by there in the text. Um, And uh, one thing I'll say in my defense is that this is already part of the case law. So the extent that this is the part that troubles you about the textual approach, uh, this is actually the one thing that's not changing, this part, this is uh, you reference Justice Scalia, I mean that's a majority opinion where Justice Scalia says there indicates a personal right. Uh, and so all of that is already part of the case law uh, as kind of a standing, it's called standing in some context. Uh, and so uh, I get rid of standing uh, and third party doctrine, but as Orrin referenced, uh, I do use there to do some of the same work, and, and it does create, uh, in my view, uh, kind of the fairest reading of it, although obviously reasonable people could uh, differ here, the fairest reading of the use of there is that it indicates that you have to be asserting a right in a search of your house, not your neighbor's house, uh, things like that. There is some support, if you look at the drafting history, this is the most originalist part uh, of my piece, uh, where James Madison, actually, who wrote the Massachusetts version, of the, I mean, he was drawing from the Massachusetts version, uh, which said every subject Uh, has a right in his house, his paper, his, so it actually felt much more personal uh, in that. Uh, Madison replaced every subject with the people and then necessarily replaced his with their, Uh, and actually in his draft, their applied through, so it was like their uh, house, their papers, uh, their effects, and then there was a committee that kind of stylistically changed all the theirs to one there. so I think that supports an idea that this is a personal right, Uh, but there's something interesting uh, to say about you could say that it's a personal right that could be asserted vicariously, and so like California for a long time said that. So the right that's been violated is your neighbor's right, but we'll let you assert your right. Uh, we'll let you assert your neighbor's right, and you could you could do it that way. I don't I don't have a you know, you as long as you're um, using the, the the decision about whether the right has been violated. Uh, the way I'm describing, I mean, someone's right has been violated in your examples, and then it's just a question of remedy, which Will will get very angry, because now you've you've moved even further away from the, I guess, the original uh, tort suit plan, uh, but you could have criminal cases where defendants were asserting a Fourth Amendment violation uh, of someone else's rights.
0: Okay. Uh, uh, We started a few minutes late, and I was told we could go sort of two or or three minutes, so let's take it. We have time for just one more question. I think there was a person in the back. Wonderful.
5: I don't uh, disagree with anything anyone said, given the murky state of the Fourth Amendment uh, jurisprudence. I wanna add to it, though. I think there is an elephant in the room that we didn't mention that I think is worth mentioning, and that is Kylo versus the United States. The facts are, mm, uh, in some ways, analogous to Carpenter, not too different. But uh, the test, just in summary for Kylo was, Uh, about uh, the expectation of privacy and is the technology generally available to the public was the test of whether you needed to get a warrant or not. It was based on whether the police could use an infrared detection device on the perimeter of a house to detect heat because of a marijuana operation or something. So my concern is that um, the Supreme Court has ignored Kylo in their jurisprudence, but that doesn't mean it isn't there. So it's like the elephant in the room and maybe like that um, Gould that raises itself from the graveyard in the lemon test one day, they were going to have to deal with that absurd test of is the technology generally available to the public? And it was only about six months later that the absurdity of that test was tested in Virginia when someone said, oh, I'll use Kylo to." Check Challenge a sniffing dog because sniffing dogs aren't generally available to the public. So, my point is that test is still out there, that US Supreme Court standard. And um, I'm sad to say it was written by Scalia, Um, but uh, their way it was a 5 4, so uh, it wasn't a, a strong decision. But I think what what do you do? What do we need to do with these standards that are hanging out there, uh, not dealt with? I think it needs to be either narrowed so much that we don't have to think about it anymore or cleared up in some way. So, what do you think about Kylo's role in this murky area?
0: We, we, only, we have a, a short window of time, but I'll give kind of the, the 20 second answer, which is I think we end up in the Fourth Amendment setting with very localized rules where we have you know, the rule for sense enhancing devices directed at the home. Uh, we have it's sort of all of these rules which end up being quite localized and it's relatively rare to have a broad rule that applies in lots of settings. Uh, and that's why I think Kylo you know, was relied on in Carpenter but it, that generally, uh, uh, in general public use language has not been interpreted uh, really again. It's also not even clear that the court meant it when they said it, they, they were relying on cases uh, uh, in which they, the court had kind of mentioned that idea. And I think a lot of it was to make sure that, for example, eyeglasses didn't make uh, looking at a house a search, or uh, you know, some, something, a flashlight, for example, which had been resolved in the 1925 case. So um, I think that's probably what they had in mind, but I th- agree it was an inartful part of the opinion.
3: They should have used Oregon tort law.
2: All <laughs> right, just since we're plugging our theory, so for me, um, you know, we, we have a, my definition of an examination of an object or space to uncover information. You've got this device pointed at Kylo's house to uncover what's going on inside. It's clearly a search. It's a search of Kylo's house, Fourth Amendment search. And, and it's just so much cleaner than, as you suggest, this idea, like Oren says, a special rule for this exact technology with all these new technologies, or a rule that has to do with how many people have the type of technology that you're using.
0: Thank you all for coming. Thank, Thank you.
2: you.